Diabetic ketoacidosis is a common serious complication of type 1 and occasionally type 2 diabetes with a mortality of 3 to 5%. This week's clinical review looks at the evidence-based treatment recommendations to help non-specialists manage patients in the emergency setting with this condition. I'm joined in the studio today by Dr. Shivani Misra, a clinical research fellow and specialist trainee in metabolic medicine. Shivani, thank you for joining me today. It's my pleasure. Can we start by talking a little bit about what DKA actually is? Sure. Um, DKA is basically uh, an extreme metabolic state um, and it's caused really by um, insulin deficiency and that might be an absolute insulin deficiency which is what we see in people with type 1 diabetes Uh, or it might be uh, what we call a relative insulin deficiency where the insulin levels are simply lower than the other hormones um, and those are classically hormones like glucagon and cortisol. Um, And what happens because of this insulin deficiency is that you get um, unopposed lipolysis. So fats basically get broken down um, and insulin usually suppresses that. And the end stage of that is the generation of ketone bodies. Um, Now, ketone bodies are acidic organic compounds. So as the ketone bodies accumulate, um, you develop an acidosis. And so those are the sort of three key parameters of DKA, having the ketones, uh, the acidosis, um, and also obviously because there's not enough insulin around, the glucose levels will rise as well. So the third facet is hyperglycemia. So obviously you mentioned, you know, that, that this is an acidosis and the underlying cause of the DKA, but when does it occur? What sort of precipitants can, can bring on an episode? Yeah, that's a really an interesting question. So if we if we look at people with type 1 diabetes, um, obviously DKA can occur at presentation. So uh, people that have never been diagnosed with diabetes might present um, uh, with DKA um, having never known that they had diabetes, and that's obviously a medical emergency. But DKA... Um, can also occur in anyone with established type 1 diabetes and there's usually some kind of precipitant. Now that might be because they're unwell for another reason, uh, classically an infective cause or um, some other sort of stress on the body, maybe they've had surgery or or they've been unwell for another reason. Um, But we also have to think about um, patients when they're not unwell and maybe they simply don't have enough insulin on board and that could be insulin omission which sometimes can be deliberate but other times can be um, a mistake. And obviously all of those uh, situations will predispose to having DKA. If we look at people with other forms of diabetes, and this is where it gets really interesting, um, so you can develop DKA in type 2 diabetes um, if you're unwell, but there are a subset of patients who get DKA um, and that's known as uh, ketosis prone type 2 diabetes and our understanding of that is still developing. But what's really interesting about that group is they don't tend to get a precipitant. So they haven't been unwell um, and just suddenly they present in DKA. So that's been a sort of fascinating development in in the kind of uh, knowledge base of DKA over the last um, few decades and we're still learning about that. What sort of symptoms and signs should make doctors or non-specialists wonder about DKA in diabetic patients? Yeah, so if you read the textbooks, there's a sort of classic description of feeling lethargic and unwell, probably vomiting um, and and feeling nauseated. There's often GI symptoms associated with it. But really, I think if you talk to diabetologists and if you you talk to people who who see people with DKA, um, it's something that you should really consider in anybody that's unwell with diabetes. Um, And particularly if you look at inpatients where um, the recent diabetes survey revealed that 
DKA can occur in inpatients. I think really um, astute clinicians should just, should just think about the diagnosis in anyone uh, that's unwell with diabetes. Um, and the parameters that I spoke about may not always be you know, unanimously present in a patient. So you have to have a strong uh, clinical index of suspicion. And also, as you say, not to just think of it as being something associated with type 1, but also potentially type 2 definitely, as well. Definitely, definitely. I mean, if you if you talk to uh, diabetologists, we've always seen DKA in, in type 2 diabetes patients when they've been unwell. So if they've been ad- admitted with um, sort of pneumonia or they've had a heart attack, uh, anyone can, can get DKA. But of course, um, it, it's much more common in people with type 1 diabetes. There are some differences in, that you discuss in the review um, between the guidelines on when and how to diagnose DKA. Can you tell us a bit more about those? Yeah, so the two major guidelines that look at the management of DKA um, are the Joint British Diabetes Society guidelines, which is what, what we follow in the United Kingdom, and also the American Diabetes Association. Now, generally, they agree on the parameters to, to diagnose DKA. So having a, a high sh- a glucose, um, having ketones and being acidotic. But the actual numerical cutoffs vary a little bit. Um, for example, the JBDS guidelines suggest a, a slightly lower glucose threshold than the ADA guidelines. Um, and that's probably a good thing if you look at the evidence base. I mentioned earlier on that sometimes um, you don't always see a high glucose in DKA, and that's um, something called euglycemic ketoacidosis. So having a slightly lower glucose threshold um, is probably not a bad thing. The other difference between the guidelines is really on how ketones should be measured. And this is a bit of a hot topic at the moment. Um, ketones can be measured in the urine. That's what we've been doing for many, many decades. Um, and that measures a specific ketone called acetoacetate when you dip the urine. Um, but the ketone that gets really high in DKA in the blood is, is a different ketone to the one in the urine. And that's called beta-hydroxybutyrate. So you can't measure that in the urine. You can only measure that on in the blood, uh, classically using a finger prick capillary device. So there's a bit of, um, uh, should we say, disagreement between the guidelines or lack of clarity on how ketones should be measured. Um, And um, it was a bit beyond uh, the the current review to go into all of that detail, but the the evidence base behind the optimum form of ketone measurement and what that cutoff should be um, is by no means uh, full at the moment. And there's a bit of work to do to try and unpick that. Um, in the UK, we're advised to use uh, capillary uh, blood ketone testing if it's available, um, and the cutoff stipulated is three millimoles per litre. Um, so that, that's what we're doing in the UK currently. Great. Once the diagnosis is confirmed, if we move on now to talk a bit about management, you mentioned that the mainstay of fluids and insulin delivery. Should we talk a bit about fluids first? What fluids should we be using and how fast should we be giving them? Yeah, I mean, it is the single most important thing, actually, in the management of DKA. It's uh, The patients are profoundly dehydrated when they come in, um, and all of the guidelines recommend uh, stat fluid delivery. And to begin with, that should be normal saline. And actually, in the JBDS guidelines, we're advised to continue with normal saline throughout. I mean, normal saline's a really good fluid to give. Um, and there's some... Um, slight changes in the ADA guidance um, about different fluids but for us over here we're definitely advised to give normal saline. If we if we turn to insulin now what insulin should be given and when should that be initiated? So 
Obviously, insulin is a really key treatment in DKA because you need to give the insulin to suppress the ketogenesis, which is the underlying problem. Um, fluids are started straight away and then patients should should have um, short-acting insulin initiated via an intravenous um, uh, drip. And there's been a sort of change, really. I think when the JBDS guidelines came out, um, we were advised to deliver that insulin in a fixed rate, which is based on the patient's weight. And so we need to give 0.1 units per kilo per hour. And the reason for for giving a fixed rate like that um, was really the the understanding that when you deliver insulin, the glucose normalises much faster but the ketones don't suppress until later. So there's a lag between the glucose getting to the normal level and, and the ketones normalizing. So you need to continue insulin for longer than people were doing it when we used to get variable rate insulin delivery. So we're advised to give uh, 0.1 units per kilogram per hour, um, and that's uh, based on some studies that have been done over the last few decades, really. Um, But it's not, uh, I mean, if you look at the evidence base for that, it's by no means clear cut. And I think it's one of the areas where there might be a bit of a knowledge gap about what the optimum um, dose of delivery should be. Because, of course, it's not just about suppressing the ketones, because if you give too much insulin, then you risk some of the complications we see, which include hypokalemia and hypoglycemia. So um, as we said in the review, there's a real, really delicate balance to get between adequately suppressing ketones and normalising the glucose, but not overshooting and causing hypokalemia and hypoglycemia. So monitoring is really important as well. Absolutely, yeah, that is really critical. I mean, um, you know, these patients need very close monitoring, um, and and it sort of came through in the in the UK survey that we referenced, which is very important data uh, because it shows probably for the first time the kind of real world uh, consequences of of implementing these complex regimes, um, and it's difficult. Um, and you know, these patients are really sick, so there is no substitute for close clinical observation perhaps in a in a high dependency area um, but patients need to be monitored and have their electrolytes um, and ketone levels monitored very regularly. If we think a bit more about electrolytes um, Shivani you talk a bit about potassium replacement which is also very important can you tell us a bit more? Absolutely so insulin will drive uh, potassium from the extracellular compartment back into the cells so classically patients will come in uh, usually hyperkalemic because they're insulin uh, insulin deficient and as soon as you start giving them insulin you start driving the potassium in so literally after the first bag of of normal saline you would start supplementing subsequent bags with um, potassium and you need to keep a very close eye on that. and and monitor electrolytes, as the JBDS guidelines mention, at least two hourly, um, or perhaps more frequently if patients develop hypokalemia. Is there a role for bicarbonate? Yeah, that, that, that comes up a lot. Um, I think if you look back at the evidence base now, um, the general wisdom really suggests that we should avoid bicarbonate where possible. The, the only um, evidence that was, that was there was in really severe acidosis. So when people are really acidotic and very unwell, there's some evidence that giving bicarbonate might help uh, stabilise some of the sort of ca- cardiovascular effects of that acidosis. But outside of that severe acidosis, 
basis, the the merits of bicarbonate really are, are, there's no evidence base to support it. And in fact, it may actually cause harm. So you certainly wouldn't consider bicarbonate in most people with DKA. And uh, certainly decisions like that need to be taken by, you know, specialists. Um, uh, so I think even both guidelines agree that you, you wouldn't normally consider bicarbonate treatment. So the next question, I suppose, is what marks the end of the episode of DKA? That's a really interesting question as well. So, I mean, you've got the the biochemical criteria stipulated in in both the JBDS and ADA guidelines. They're slightly different, but they generally agree that the glucose should be normal-ish, the ketones should be really suppressed, um, and the pH and the bicarbonate should be back to normal, um, as well as the patient should be eating and drinking. It's difficult, really, because when we looked at the evidence base for this, you could achieve all of those things, but then cause the patient to become hypoglycemic and hypokalemic. So what what should be our goal? I mean, I don't think it's clear cut at the moment. Should we be trying to eradicate the ketones as fast as possible and then potentially risk giving too much insulin and causing hypokalemia and hypoglycemia? Or should we opt for lower dose insulin and prolong um, the delivery of insulin and allow people to recover slowly, but then potentially cause less hypokalemia and hypoglycemia. These are questions that are actually unanswered at the moment. And I think there's scope to try and build up the evidence base in these areas. Um, But generally, I mean, looking at the JBDS guidelines, there are biochemical criteria. The patient should be eating and drinking. Um, And one of the really important things about marking out resolution is to make sure that there's an overlap between the intravenous insulin delivery and the subcutaneous insulin uh, start point. So there should be at least of a, a, a half an hour overlap if not longer and then finally if we think about the the post-discharge care once someone's been in DKA and you know they've had an established episode what advice should be given to them as to how to prevent it from occurring again yeah that's that's a really important point because a significant proportion of of DKA episodes occur in people who have got type 1 diabetes um, as an established diagnosis so we with those really should be preventable um, what we have in type 1 diabetes as part of nice guidance is uh, structured education programs which anyone who is diagnosed with type 1 diabetes should be offered um, the one that, that most people will have heard of is called Daphne um, and in these educational programs people are given advice on on how to avoid DKA what to do if they become sick for example up titrating insulin doses when to test ketones so generally advice um, that should hopefully help prevent DKA and in fact in in several studies has been shown to be very effective at preventing DKA. What we know from the uh, national audits is that uptake could probably be better of those structured education programmes. So there's certainly um, room for improvement in in making sure that everyone's offered the educational programmes and even re-offered the educational programmes if they don't attend the first time. Um, So those are the sorts of things that that we need to counsel uh, people with type 1 diabetes on. For GPs who may not be aware of these structured education programmes, how would they go about accessing them? Is it usually through the local hospital team or the diabetic specialist nurse? Absolutely. So most people with type 1 diabetes, in fact all people with type 1 diabetes, should be under this, under specialist care. Um, and as part of the multidisciplinary type 1 diabetes team, there will be a diabetes specialist nurse and a, and a diabetes-specific dietitian. Um, and usually uh, local hospitals will put together their own structured education programme using members of the multidisciplinary team. And finally, 
as part of your review, you undertook a tweet chat, didn't you, which sort of uh, posed some questions to a group, an online community of type 1 diabetics. What did you ask them and what sort of feedback did you get? Yeah, that this was really exciting, actually. So we used um, the Great Britain Diabetes Online community, GBDoc, who are a fantastic um, group of individuals that um, really provide peer support for people with diabetes. And they already have a weekly tweet chat on, on a Wednesday evening where they will ask um, the Diabetes Online community about various things. Uh, so we we approached them, and they very kindly agreed to host uh, a tweet chat about the about DKA. Um, and uh, we didn't really have any input we kind of we gave them some general questions uh, we wanted to, to just get an idea of what people's experiences were um, and there were some very very powerful responses very powerful quotes uh, I'd urge readers to go and have a look at, at, the, at the full transcript um, but I think thematically that the sort of areas that came out was how frightening an episode of DKA is for, for an individual you know it these particularly people that are presenting for the first time have usually been very well throughout their adult life and suddenly are in a state where they're not lucid and um, it's very frightening and the kind of um, care that they get at that point often impacts uh, or seems to impact on on how they progress through their type 1 diabetes management later on so that that's a very frightening time a lot of people that responded uh, didn't know much about ketone testing and that was it that was interesting because um, people with type 1 diabetes should be given some form of ketone testing so it certainly sounded like there were rooms for improvement. But I think generally um, there were also a lot of positive uh, responses and positive quotes about how things had been explained to them by their diabetes nurse or their local diabetes physician. Um, and it was really just very interesting to hear um, about, the, I guess, the, the differences in what people knew about DKA. Some people had never heard of it. Other people had had experience of it. Um, so I, I think we found that to be a very powerful tool to to, to get uh, patient perspectives um, on obviously what, what is an, a medical emergency and, and perhaps isn't... Um, m- trying to get patient perspectives wasn't wasn't wouldn't normally have been easily accessible in that circumstance so we found it really useful um, and I think it's really interesting to read through the quotes. It's a really novel way I think of, of um, garnering information from the patient community. Shivani thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you.